Welcome to Grassroot Ohio, conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Dave Noble of Red Beard Bees. Dave Noble began his professional beekeeping career at OSU's Honey Bee Research Lab in the mid-1990s. He has been training beekeepers and teaching about bees since the early 2000s. Currently, Dave runs and operates Red Beard Bees, where he continues to breed bees, harvest honey, educate people about honeybees, and train beekeepers in partnership with the Columbus Garden School. Dave employs a bee-centered philosophy to guide his beekeeping, bee breeding, and educational endeavors. He believes that a better understanding of bee behavior and bee biology creates better beekeepers. Listen to the bees and let them guide you by Brother Adam. Bees knees, none of your beeswax, and the birds and the bees. Almost everything comes down to bees. Everything does. Yes, and if you're like me, you may have only an inkling of what a beekeeper does. And you, Dave, are steeped in bees. So let's find out some more. Welcome to Grassroot Ohio. Hi, welcome. Thank you. So tell us how and why you got into beekeeping. Yes, it was, uh, again, back in the 1990s, I was a student at OSU, and I was studying crop science and botany. I was looking into crop breeding. That was a real fascination of mine growing up. uh, Even though I was raised here in central Ohio, I spent a lot of time out in the farmlands of Ohio at my grandparents' farms, and uh, I was very much attracted to the breeding side of crops. As part of that, I got a uh, work-study job at the Honeybee Research Lab. Of course, there's a tie in with pollination and crop breeding with there. So I wanted to learn more about the whole pollination process and how it works out in the real world. And I ended up working there for about 10 years, off and on, uh, helping out with the breeding program there and have never done anything with my plant pathology degree. Uh, I I just serve my insect overlords. That's all I do now is... um, doing bees and the breeding. That's sort of my favorite. It's what I first learned to do with uh, honeybees. And it's still sort of my favorite thing to always fall back on as well. Awesome. So it's the very end of March in Ohio. What are you focused on right now as a beekeeper? Um, We're just coming out of the winter diapause. I hate to say, I hate to use the word hibernation because honeybees don't really hibernate. They go dormant but they are coming out of that dormancy now. And so I am preparing for what beekeepers call swarm season and the first uh, nectar flow. Coming right out of winter with the first flush of blossoms that we're starting to see already, that pollen and that nectar starts the bees into growing their colony. And they're going to grow it until it's big enough to split in half and produce a swarm. So swarming is the mechanism by which honeybee colonies reproduce. So I'm really prepping for that, getting ready to what we would what we call split hives, which is sort of an artificial swarming. It's a way to help manage that reproduction a little bit better. And I'm getting ready for the honey season. Uh, as soon as those flowers are blooming, the bees are going to start putting on lots and lots of weight and um, harvesting the nectar to make honey. And then with that also, we are getting ready for the farm market season, which is starting the middle of April, where we go out to, of course, 
sell all of this honey that I'll be stealing from, I'm sorry, harvesting from the honeybee colonies a little bit later on. So I've been seeing memes advocating to not killing our dandelions mm -hmm. as they are the bees first food. Is that so? And what other sources are their first foods? Okay. So that's a great thing. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I both agree and disagree with that meme. Don't kill the dandelions. They aren't the first source of food for bees. Like I say, they've been foraging since the middle of February. If they get warm days, they'll forage on everything from skunk cabbage, purple dead nettle is blooming right now uh, a lot, crocus, daffodils. So there's all kinds of flowers and especially some of the early blossoming trees. A week or two ago, maple pollen was coming into the hives on warm days. So <clears throat> there are other flowers, but the dandelion, I believe, is that iconic flower that we all know and we can all recognize. Not many of us know when the maple trees are blossoming, but when those <laughs> dandelions pop up in our yard, we know spring is finally getting here, right? And they were actually brought over by European settlers. They are not indigenous to North and South America. Hmm. So we brought them because at the time they were a valuable crop for people as well as bees. And so it's just sort of ironic to me that we spend so much time trying to get rid of the things that we ourselves brought here on purpose. Um, but let the, let the dandelions go. Let the clover grow in your lawn. It makes for a healthier lawn and it makes for a healthier ecosystem for not just honeybees, but all of the springtime bees that are uh, ab about to start emerging here in Ohio. What time do they start emerging? Like you said, with the warmer days, some mm -hmm. of them started emerging back in February. Yeah. So a honeybee colony, like I say, they go dormant during the winter, but their dormancy only kicks in once we get sort of below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you've got a day that we get up into the 40s, they'll sort of break their dormancy a little bit. And if we get into the mid 40s or 50s, they're going to be out flying and looking for forage. Um, I mean, I was out this morning and the bees, the honeybees are out flying already. I'm already having to provide water for them. Uh, to make sure that they're um, they've got enough water, other bees are going to come out with, dependent on the weather and blossoms. So we're about to start seeing our ground dwelling bees, like our cellophane bees and our minor bees, are going to start coming up. And all those different species have you know different timelines and flower blossoms that they follow. But we can't go into all of them because there are more bees than most people think uh, <laughs> native to here here in Ohio. Oh, so that's another show down the road. That, yes, yeah. There's there's something like four to five hundred species of bees that live in Ohio. Honeybees are one of the only social ones that overwinter as a colony, um, and they're not native as well. They're also imported from Europe and Africa. Wow. What about the the, the these changes, um, strong, hard changes in the weather? Like when it gets warm and then it gets down, you know, below freezing, and yeah. within a couple of days, does that impact their survival? Yeah, and what we're we've seen a lot this spring is the honeybees will start when they come out of dormancy and they're collecting fresh pollen and nectar. That triggers them to start raising brood. In other words, the queen starts laying eggs and starts producing new honeybees for the season. But then when we get hit with a cold spell, we get something we see called chilled brood. So the cold then, they can only keep so much of those eggs warm. 
And so a lot of them will actually get chilled and killed by the brood. So it's kind of a rough start. That's, it's not great for the bees to have wild fluctuations in temperature. They right. can handle it, but there are impacts that will slow them down a little bit in the long run. Okay. Now you got your start in an urban setting. Are mm-hmm. you still urban based? Yeah. So all of our colonies, where we keep our colonies, it's called a bee yard. All of our bee yards are within a 10 to 20 minute drive from my home on the east side of Columbus. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got hives in Worthington, up near the old Northland Mall area, Cook Road, Mays Road area, Whitehall, Bexley. And I had a few up, I have a few up in New Albany area too. So it's all still pretty much very urban uh, area. Is there a reason why you chose urban rather than, you know, focusing on more rural areas? Uh, Just happenstance of that's where I live. And our business model, and I've always been a huge fan of local, local markets, local economies. And so I like to have the honey that we harvest and sell sold in the same areas that it's actually harvested and made by the bees. So that's one of the reasons. And, you know, I, I grew up in the city and I'm, 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 I, I love going out to the country, but uh, I've got to be home every day in the city. And that's, you know, where I love to live and uh, just makes it a lot easier. And the bees do well. The honeybees are so adaptable. They live in almost every possible ecosystem and climate around the world. So you actually import, have you imported your own bee colonies and hive? Yeah. So when I, when I mentioned that they're not native, that, um, that they come from Europe and Africa, and I'm talking sort of historically. Okay. So just, just like cows and sheep and apple trees are not native to North America. We've imported those through settlement. Honeybees, in fact, I believe the first time there's a record of honeybees coming to the new world is 1620 into wow. Trinidad and Tobago. But before that, there, there weren't any true what we would call honeybees um, in the Americas. Now, I am going to go back to your local commitment. Is there, I've read that, you know, local honey can help folks with local allergies. Is that true? Is there something to that? Um, I know people who swear by it and I don't, I don't know exactly. I can tell you what the, the theory or the hypothesis of how it works is it's kind of related to the hygiene hypothesis of allergies, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where they say, the kids that go out and are exposed to dirt and dander and all the things that cause allergies have lower incidence of allergy. Yeah. So honey has pollen in it. Pollen is not an element or an ingredient of honey. Honey, uh, pollen is a contaminant quote. I'm putting that in quotes of, of honey. Mm-hmm. Honey is made from the nectar of the plants. Pollen is a protein source that the bees use to eat in the colony, but it ends up getting in the, in the honey. And so the idea is that you're basically um, giving your immune system this sort of inoculation of local mm-hmm. honey at a very low level. And that is what helps. It's not the kind of thing where you're going to go out and take a little bit of bee pollen and your allergies go away. Yeah, It is constant daily low level dosages throughout. Like homeopathy. Yeah. yeah. Sort of that same kind of idea. Right, right, right. How sustainable is red beard bees? Um, red beard honey. 
how sustainable are your practices? And mm-hmm. talk about a bit about that. Yeah, we are, um, my wife, Devin, and I are working to start this business. So we were, uh, I like to say, given the opportunity during the 2020 pandemic to find new jobs and start a business. So that's what we did. And we're not young like we used to be anymore. So we're doing this in a very sustainable way. We have moved to a, um, a more affordable home in Whitehall with more land. We built a honey house out on the back of our property that is used just for the business to extract honey, bottle it, make candles. And we're doing this all on our own, just the two of us. We're not doing a super large scale. There are some very large scale commercial beekeepers in the state, but we're looking to do this at a scale that the two of us together can handle all the work. And we're also doing it in a financially sustainable way. We're not taking out business loans. In fact, we're about to roll out a sales event or um, we're not even sure how we're going to say it. We need, we need a new truck and we want to get a hybrid plug-in truck for the business because we don't need to be burning gas anymore to do this. Um, so we're always looking at that. And as for the practices, it goes back to my bee-centered philosophy. I um, And I teach this when I train new beekeepers. Don't manage for a yield. In other words, if you're managing your bees to in- just to increase the yield of honey and other products that you can harvest from them, you're harming the bees. And what I mean by that is, if you take care of the bees, if you meet all of their needs and what they need to be a healthy colony, your harvests and yields will increase. Okay? So many times in business, especially in agriculture, we're looking at how many pounds of something can we get out of it to sell? And I need to look at how many buckets of sweat I can put into the bees that will then pay dividends. So sustainable all the way around. If I don't take good care of the bees, that's bad business practice. And it's also, I believe, unethical livestock management at the same time. So you can't really mandate that the bees gather pollen or nectar from organic or regenerative plants. What about folks putting insecticides and pesticides and herbicides on their yards and their, on their crops? How does that impact the bees? Um, It's a big impact. And and, and when you mentioned earlier about the difference between keeping bees in an urban setting versus a rural, there's lots of studies about how honeybees do in those two different settings. And it's sort of a mix. The, the, The conclusion is it depends, you know, like with a lot of science, there's a lot of factors. So out in the, out in the more farmland areas, pesticides can be a bigger problem because if you think about urban use of pesticides, we're using it at what, a 50 by 50 square at a time, your front lawn. Mm. Out in the urban areas, it's 500 acres at a time are getting sprayed. Right. And if they're spraying herbicides on those weeds that are blossoming, producing pollen and nectar for the bees, they're killing the bees' food source to replace it with corn. And corn is not a great, it, it produces pollen for bees, but it's not a great forage for bees to, to live on. What's a forage? I'm sorry. Oh, What's a for- forage? Any of the plants, any of the plants that the bees actually use to get nectar and pollen is called their forage. Okay. Um, so it, it, it's a complicated. One of, the, one of the neat things is, again, by looking at the bees and watching their behavior, my main job is to monitor their health the whole way through. 
So I can start to see if there are any problems. And I'll be honest, in the urban setting, I don't really see a lot of pesticide issues in the beehives. Two main reasons. One, pesticides are used in very small areas and not all at the same time. And honeybees are actually preferential feeders, Hmm. which means they will avoid things that don't taste right or smell right. So there is some studies that, that show that honeybees will avoid patches that have been sprayed with certain pesticides. Obviously, there's a million different pesticides, but so bees know how to, you know, if they've got forage somewhere else and they don't have to to go to the stuff that's just been sprayed with Roundup or whatever it might be, then they'll avoid that. Unfortunately, our native bees don't have that choice because (laughs) honeybees can gather food from a 25 square mile area around their hive which is a pretty large area. Most native bees only can go maybe a couple hundred yards from their nest site. So they're much more limited. And actually it's the native bees that are suffering more under um, the pesticide use than honeybees. So, and the native bees and all the insects are pollinators and not all of them, but the the native bees are definitely pollinators. And so we really can't afford to kill them off. No, no. I, it is amazing. I've, I've obviously got a lot of entomology under my belt. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an entomologist, but how we depend on insects is incredible. I spend a lot of time in my you know, hometown going to calls about pest insects that they think are honeybees that I might want. And most of the times it's yellow jackets, bald-faced hornets, all kinds of things that aren't honeybees. And I spend a little bit of time talking to them about how valuable, you know, nobody, not even beekeepers like yellow jackets. If it weren't for yellow jackets, we would be drowned in other insects. Yellow jackets and bald-faced hornets consume pounds, hundreds of tons of pounds of insects every year Hmm. um, because they're predators that hunt them. And they also hunt those pests that eat our crops. So caterpillars, we often we often think of pollinators as honeybees, butterflies, moths, hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. The only problem with butterflies and moths is their juvenile stages, the caterpillars, are what eat our crops. Those are the number one crop pests. And yellow jackets and bald-faced hornets love caterpillars. <laughs> <laughs> this is Carolyn Harding with Grassroot Ohio. And today I'm talking with Dave Noble. And he is a beekeeper, an educator about all things bees. And he also has a business called Red Beard Bees and Honey. So let's talk about the health benefits of eating local honey. What is what is the good thing about honey besides the sweet taste? Um, it's a, it is a natural sugar. And it is probably one of the most energy dense foods that there is, meaning what you eat is easily converted into energy. Mm-hmm. Right? So when you're eating honey, be active. <laughs> I know a lot of uh, high school track teams, they, you know, honey load right before a race because it does give you that ready energy. And so it's easily digestible. It's all simple sugars. So they're not complex. They're not over-processed. And honestly, the the local honey, it's it's not even so much local for health benefits as much as it is know your beekeeper, know how they harvest it. 
I always say the best way to help bees, honeybees, is buy honey from your local beekeeper because those are the people that need that business in order to keep and maintain the bees. It is expensive. Maintaining hives is very expensive. So it's more about a healthy local economy as well as your own individual physical health as well. You know, I'm a big, we're going to be doing the farmer's markets all over the city this year. And I'm a huge fan of buying fresh local foods and using those to make your your dinners. I mean, I that is a, I walk it and talk it on, on both ends. I'm a big supporter of beeswax candles. I love the way they smell. I love the way they look. I've even heard they have, they emit certain kinds of ions. Is that true? Is there? I, I don't know the science about whether they, they're emitting ions, but I will tell you, I spent the entire winter making thousands of beeswax candles and <laughs> I have the softest hands in the world (laughs) and our house smells wonderful. There's no, it's just such a calming smell. It's yeah. yeah. My own, again, because I don't have expert knowledge in that, what I, I always default to the less processed, the better. So other candles are made from petroleum products. Um, Many of them, they've got a lot of soy candle wax now too. But beeswax, the only thing I have to do to make a beeswax candle is pour it into a mold or dip a wick down into it. And we're not processing it. It's not extruded from something else. Uh, So I think for me, that's the real real advantage to beeswax as candles. I think some people are concerned about what happens to the bees when you take away the wax, you know, or Mm -hmm. their food. What actually happens and how do you do it sustainably? Yeah. So that's a great question because it is very important. As I said, from the beginning and our motto is it's the bees come first, because if you don't have healthy bees, you don't have a healthy business model or economy. So bees have been bred over the course of centuries to produce more honey than they need to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, A good analogy would be sheep. If we never sheared the wool off of sheep, they would die of heat stroke about July because we bred them to grow 10 times more wool than they actually need, right? Mm. So with honeybees, we've done the same thing. Another thing that has helped is the hive design. I'm trying to think just to be trying to make a long story short yeah. <laughs> as best I can. The way the hive is designed now, we can return 90% of the wax, the comb to the hive. We can do what we call extract the honey. I'll take mm-hmm. a frame of honeycomb out of the hive, put it in a centrifuge. All I had to do was cut off the thin layer of wax cappings that seal the honey into the comb. Mm-hmm. That's the wax that I use to make candles. And then I return the actual honeycomb back to the bees. Wow. Honeybees have to consume somewhere between eight and 10 pounds of honey to make one pound of wax. So wax is the valuable resource in a honeybee hive, both to the bees and to the beekeeper. So when I'm harvesting both of those things, my number one thought is leaving enough for the bees. Just a quick story about preparing for spring bee season. One of the things I was doing in the last month was I will set aside frames, comb of honey, honeycomb in the fall. And then around February, March, 
when the bees have run, some of the hives run out of their food resources, I go get some of that honey that I took and set aside and I just give it right back to the bees. And that way, again, that's one of the sustainable practices. Now, we do have to feed our bees from time to time, just depending on weather and the climate and how that, and how that change, change is changing so quickly is causing a lot of changes in the industry of beekeeping as well. You know, people in agriculture, we are 100% aware of how this climate is changing and how quickly it is. That's for sure. Dave, we tell us people at if they're interested in taking classes from you or finding out more about pollinators or finding out more about your bees and honey for sale, how can people reach out to you? The best way to reach out to me is uh, through email, which is redbeardbees at gmail.com. We are, we do have a website and it is scheduled to be live this next month in April sometime. We're, we're hoping for the first, but that's looking like more of an April Fool's Day joke. We're going to be first first week or two of April. Redbeardbees.com. That provides links to our classes that we offer at the Columbus Garden School. We do everything from beekeeper training. Some years we just have some come meet the bees for the general public. Uh, I'm going to be at farmer's markets all over town. That information will be on the website as well. Um, we're doing the Upper Arlington Farmers Markets uh, through the whole season. That'll be our main market that we're doing. And uh, we plan to have some open houses here at Redbeard Bees headquarters at the uh, Rainbow's End, which is what we have named our honey house. So uh, when we do start some honey extraction through our website, we'll be posting that we're having some open houses and people can come stop by and see the process for themselves. I would think that kids that are able to handle the equipment or the the protective gear mm-hmm. would find an experience or exposure to honeybees quite quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I take kids out, and uh, in, in the past, I've taken kids out into the colonies. We usually have about a, a five year age limit, and uh, we go right out to the hives, and they're fascinated by it. All the kids start off, "Oh, I'm I'm terrified and scared of bees," and you know, we set up a whole protocol. By the end of it, I'm usually having to remind them that they need to back up a little bit more for safety. <laughs> but we part of re- raising and breeding my own bees is I breed them first for gentleness. So I am actually wearing my beekeeper's outfit right now. I go short sleeves and shorts. I dress for the weather, not for the bees. Because again, honeybees are actually, they are vegetarians. They're herbivores, mm-hmm. which means they are not aggressive animals. They mm-hmm. aren't violently aggressive. They are defensive, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the old the old saying of if you leave a honeybee alone, it'll leave you alone is 100% true. You know, mm-hmm. I like to say honeybees are like little flying cows. A cow is not going to hurt you at mm-hmm. all. It doesn't think you're dinner. But if you go after a cow's baby, then that cow will hurt you quite a lot. So honeybees are the same. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not threatening to them, they're very gentle. So I've, I've been out several times um, out in the bees and in, in the warm spells already and uh, wearing not much more than long pants and a t-shirt. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time and for educating us uh, more about the honeybee and more about the importance of being sustainable and taking care of our bees and not just the honeybees. And I hope that um, this spring goes well, and I'll be looking for you at the farmer's markets. Yes, absolutely. Check out my webpage and let the weeds in your lawn grow. It's fine. It's good for your lawn. 
Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. WGRN-FM and WCRS-FM are relocating our radio tower. So for the next several weeks, Grassroot Ohio will be streaming worldwide, which means on the internet, on Fridays at 5 p.m. at www.wgrn.org and on Sundays at 2 p.m. at www.wcrsfm.org. We'll be up and back on the air at our new station, which will be 91.9 FM. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back.